Well, this morning we both resume our study and begin a new series all at the same time. Uh, What I mean by that is we begin again our study of the book of Romans, which we began quite some time ago. Uh, We looked at the first 11 chapters over uh, uh, quite a a period. Uh, And then during the holidays, we took, as we normally do, time to focus on uh, the promises uh, of the Incarnation. Uh, And now we come back to the book of Romans, and so we resume. In another sense, we are doing something new. Uh, As we began the series of Romans, um, we um, were focusing on what it is that we are to believe, and Paul lays the foundations of our faith. Now that we've come to Romans chapter 12 and through chapter 16, which we'll be looking at throughout this spring, we are now instructed on how it is that we should now live. And so we come today to our passage, Romans chapter 12. We'll be focusing our attention on verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of our God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of our God. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we come this morning, we do pray that you would continue to be at work in accordance with your promise and with the work that you have already begun. We do praise you, and we acknowledge you through our songs and through our prayers and even in our confession as we cling to the hope of your promise that you will never forsake us and that your love overcomes even a multitude of our sin. But now we worship by giving to you our ears, our minds, as well as our hearts and our lives, uh, that your word, as it is read, as it is pondered, as it is proclaimed, that we would hear with ears that empowered by your Spirit, that would now kindle uh, within our minds uh, awe of the glory of your grace, and therefore shape our hearts and what our hearts delight in, that we would do, that we might worship you in this way. So, Father, may we hear your voice as we come. I pray that you would empower those who listen, uh, that you would empower me, that the, even the weaknesses of my communication would not be a hindrance to the work of your hand. And so we commend ourselves now to you to be at work. We pray all to the glory of Christ. Amen. Theologian author Michael Horton, in the introduction to his his book, Where in the World is the Church, he he writes this. Sometimes hymns confuse me. I remember being confused as a boy by two popular hymns that seemed quite contradictory. The first was, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. And the other was, this is my father's world. If this is my father's world, I wondered, why am I just passing through? 
And so Horton's boyhood question is, it may, resonates with, with many because it's an illustration of a very real, a very common challenge for anyone and everyone who desires to be a follower of Jesus Christ uh, because it, it raises a, a real question for us. It, 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 what, is it, what does it mean? Or what, is the, what is the relationship that we as followers of Jesus Christ are to have with the world that is around us and the world in which we live. You see, we live with a tension if we are followers of Jesus Christ. And it's not just a tension of the world versus the Spirit. It's the Bible itself creates a tension for us. Because the Bible at the same time proclaims this, that we are not to be conformed to the world, as the passage before us says. John you know, deals with the same issue and says, don't love the world or anything that is in the world. And at the same time, the Bible calls us to be relentlessly immersed in the world and in the communities where we live. We see this exhibited with God's instruction to his people who were in exile, scattered from the nation after Israel had, had been scattered, and the people that were living in Babylon wondering how they are to live. And then God speaks through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, basically, just plug in. You know, how is it that you're to live? Well, that you are to seek the welfare and the prosperity, the place where I have sent you. God is still sovereign. People that are scattered, they're living exactly where God wants them to be. And the people of God are supposed to plug in. He says, build homes and to plant gardens and join the PTA, which is a loose translation of the Hebrew. And he's, you know, just be involved and seek and labor for the prosperity of the people. That are. Because if it goes well for them, it will go well for you. And the implication also is that that's part of the covenant because God's people are to be a blessing to the nations that are going to draw people to him. So ultimately they might know Christ and have the ultimate blessing, which came through the Hebrew people. But part of that is necessitates that the people of God who are not to love this world and not to be conformed to this world, nevertheless are involved and engaged in this world. And in case anybody thinks, well, that's just an Old Testament pattern, Jesus himself said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And so we have to ask, how did the Father send Jesus? Well, Jesus, who was God and living in heaven, he left the ultimate gated community, came into the ultimate decaying community, which is heaven and an earth that was being corrupted and continually affected by sin, that he became one of us and then dwelt among us. He, he lived among us. He lived in everyday life just like everybody else of his age and of his, of his community. And then he died for us and then rose for us. But it was his engagement was the purpose for which he came, and it was the, uh, the model that he gave. And he tells those who are his followers, as the Father sent me, which is to go and become part, I'm now sending you. Go and become part. But we have these words that say, go and be part, but don't be like the world. And so we have this biblical tension, which raises the inevitable practical question, what does it look like for us as Christians to live in this world and yet not be conformed to the world that we live in? And it is a perplexing question that is not new to our generation, and it's, uh, it's, it's been one that Christians have had from the very beginning. I appreciate the description that uh, Duke theologian Stanley Hauerwas gives, and he presents this picture, and he, he says that one of the things is that we need to recognize that we are by nature, as those who are in Christ, resident aliens 
in this world. In other words, we are residents in the full sense. We, we live here, we work here, we engage here. We are part of the community and the culture uh, that uh, is all around us. And yet we are also aliens that while our driver's license says this is where we live, our real residence, our primary residence is somewhere else. We are also dual citizenship but our ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God, which has no geographic bounds at this point in history. It, it exists everywhere and yet is recognized on no map. And I think that the idea of being a resident alien is helpful because it gives us words which can paint a picture to help us to know really what it's supposed to look like, but it does nothing to tell us, well, then how do we do it? How is it that we are to live as resident aliens, even if that's what we are? But the passage in the verses that the Apostle Paul has before us today, he tells us not just what we ought to be, but he also shows us how we are to do so. And the first thing that we need to recognize here is that the Christian life rests entirely upon the mercies of God. That's what he says here in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of, of God. Now, we have the word therefore, which is a hinge. It's something that we've seen a number of times in the book of Romans, see elsewhere in the scripture. And as I've said then, and we'll say probably every time that we come to the therefores, whenever we come across the word therefore in a text, we as Bible students, as those who are wanting to hear what God is saying, we need to ask ourselves this question, what's the therefore, therefore? I mean, what is the therefore pointing to? Because therefore is a hinge. It's saying that everything that has come before is now connected to what is going to come later. And the therefore in this passage, therefore in Romans 12:1, is saying everything that God has written before, particularly in Romans 1 through 8, where he lays the foundations of our faith. And remember, 9 through 11, he deals with the issues of faith, but he's really doing more of an apologetic answering questions that arose while he was laying the foundations of the faith. And now we come to... Romans 12, and everything from here on out, and including what we see in verses 1 and 2, is contingent upon. It rests upon what he has already written. It rests upon the mercies of God. And Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. And Paul is saying that everything that we do rests upon what he has already taught, which when he's talking about the mercies of God, we see that in Romans 1 through 8, it is shorthand, we would say, it is, it is a shorthand way, another way of saying, upon the gospel. I appeal to you on the basis of the gospel, which is the mercies of God, because the whole point of Romans 1 through 8 is to show us our own condition, why we have lives that are just so out of sorts and, and are feeling sometimes that God is so distant is because we have rebelled against God and we have been alienated from God. And then God's response to our rebellion, which is in his great love, he sent his own son to become one of us, to dwell among us, to therefore bear the punishment that we deserve, but to rise again for our salvation, that whoever believes is now reconciled to God, is justified and is adopted and becomes children of God. This is the mercy of God is shorthand for all of the promises of the gospel. And Paul is saying, I appeal to you on this basis. I appeal, appeal to you on the basis of God's mercies that are expressed in the gospel. 
And then we have the therefore. It's the here's what we are to do, which is the remaining parts of this particular passage. And it's crucial that we remember that everything rests upon what has come before. Everything rests upon the mercies of God. But it's also crucial that we remember not only does everything rest upon the mercies of God, but to live the life that is being prescribed is powered by remembering the mercies of God. Remember when Paul talked about the gospel, he doesn't say, okay, here's how you get in, here's your ticket in, just believe, make this profession of faith, then you get in, and then we'll give you further instructions in the way that you're to live. Paul says, no, the gospel is the power of salvation. Gospel is the power for life for all who are believing. So it's not just something that's a past tense, it is an ongoing power for everyone who has believed and is continuing to believe. It is the way that we grow as well as the way that we enter into the kingdom. It is the power for our ability to live in the way that God has called us to live. And it's important that we understand that. It's just another way of saying, as we say often here, that we never, never move beyond the gospel because it is the foundation and it is the power to live the way that we are called to live. Now, some who uh, out there who would uh, call themselves, identify themselves as, as liberal or progressive Christians, you know, they have uh, 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 both admirable qualities and, and a problem. Uh, because the identification marks of those who will be progressive Christians and, and, and liberal Christians is that they want to build a Christian life, but apart from the gospel, either uh, without the gospel or making the gospel optional. Believing it, if you want to, but not necessary. Uh, but the real issue, they would say, is what, is we, what do we find in all these, how should you live? And so they're, they're building this life a, apart from the power of the gospel. In fact, they, 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 they love the ethics, but they are embarrassed at times of the story that is the power. This, and, and you can sort of understand that because the story is, I mean, Paul uses the word that the gospel is foolishness to people. Okay. There was God who lives in heaven, and he decided he was going to become man. I mean, do you know how ridiculous that sounds? And so this man, he lived a life just like every, every, the rest of us, but he's God, but he subjected himself to punishment, to being hated, to being despised, to be rejected, even to the point that he let people kill him. And then he rose again from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven. I, I mean, we're so used to it. It's the water that we swim in, but it's, it's it, you know, to the ears of people who have not, it, it sounds relatively ridiculous. And so we can sort of understand why people might say, well, let's just go for the stuff we understand and the life that is laid out here, which is, is a beautiful, beautiful life. But they miss the point that they can't live that life without remembering, basing it in view of the mercies of God. Now, while that's a challenge for those who are liberal and progressive Christians, the reality is we conservative and evangelical Christians have our own problem. We love the gospel part. We sing songs of what God has done for us. And we sing songs of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. And we study it and we tend to that and make sure that nothing uh, cracks that foundation. But many among our numbers don't like the therefores. You know, when we get to the therefore, here's the, here's the point, and here's how you're justified, and here's how you're made right with God, here's what God has done for you. Now, therefore, here's how you live. Nope, wait a second, because, you know, that's adding on. That's kind of legalism. 
you're taking away, you're adding something to our salvation. I'm not adding anything to that. Paul's the one saying, in view of the mercies of God, therefore, and there's more to it. And while those who are liberal progressive try to live without the power of the mercies of God, many among us don't try to live at all and do so on the basis of remembering the mercies of God. Paul is saying, look, I appeal to you, which is, he's going to say, this is what I want for you to do. In view of the mercies of God, we never move beyond. We remind ourselves regularly of the mercies of God. We preach the gospel to ourselves, to one another, to encourage one another, to empower one another. But in view of that, and for the reason, so that we can live the way that God has designed that we live to be what we are to be. And Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, on the basis of God's mercy. And so that's the foundation. Everything rests on that, and that's the power. And then Paul gives us three specific instructions to apply to to our lives. First of which is this, is the Christian life is a call to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so it's not, in, I said it individually, uh, but you know, the Bible is far more collective than we Americans are. We're a bunch of individuals. So when I said we all, each of us, offers living sacrifices, God receives it collectively. Either way, as we are looking at this, Paul's appeal Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, it's a challenging words, but to the people who first read those, or first, uh, they would have been absolutely shocking. Because even though he was writing to the people in Rome, the Greek culture had now changed, and so people had, rather than Roman thought, they were living with Greek thought. And in Greek thought, the body was evil. And so to be all you can be was to get away from the body and only cultivate that which was supposedly spiritual and mental and intellectual. And Paul's saying, submit your bodies to, as, to God as living sacrifices, as a living sacrifice. The Bible teaches that not that the body is evil, but the body was made by God after his own image. The body was made and God said it is very good. Now, it's in the body that we rebel against God that we carry out many of the sins which are contrary to his way, but that doesn't change the nature of the fact that everyone who is living and breathing has been created after the image of God. And Paul goes on and builds on that understanding, the biblical and Hebrew understanding of, of the nature of the body. It's as though there's corruption, it is the body is good. And even tells us in this passage that the body, what we do with our bodies, is part of God's plan. It is, a, it is a tool in God's plan for our spiritual growth, for our sanctification. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God, as a spiritual act of worship before him. Now, while we may not embrace openly the whole idea of the, the Greek, the body is bad, a lot of that thinking really has infiltrated the thinking of the church. I think for a moment what you might say, especially those of you who have been Christians for any length of time, to someone who has either recently come to faith or maybe they made a profession of faith a long time ago and they've drifted, they've not lived as 
they want to live. And now, whatever circumstances in their lives has brought them back to a point where they're saying, look, I, I want to walk with God. I'm just not really sure how to do that. I, I don't really even know what are the first steps. How, how do we tend to respond? What's our counsel to somebody like that? Well, I don't know what you would say, but I, I know what I have said and what I have heard a number of times is the, the first counsel to somebody like that is give your heart to God. And it's not bad counsel. I mean, the scriptures elsewhere talk about the heart, which is the center of our, uh, of, of our uh, affections and our motives. And, and, and so it's shorthand. And we're to love God with all of our you know, mind and our strength and our, our heart. And so it's not bad advice. But we tend to leave it there. And Paul says there, there's more. Paul's saying give your body to God. Give your body as if it is a living sacrifice. And so even the phrase that he uses there brings an idea of, of, of the Old Testament nature of the relationship with God, but he's also speaking to kind of our, our impulses. The idea of being a living sacrifice is reminding us that during the Old Testament, during the time of the Old Covenant, one of the ways in which we are renewed in our relationship with God is to offer regular sacrifices. Some were prescribed for the nation, and, and so there would be sacrifices prepared. The animals would be slaughtered, and, and then particularly Yom Kippur. But the sacrifices were made because, the Scriptures tell us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The sacrifices were required, and yet they were never sufficient. In fact, they always were told by the book of Hebrews, pointed to a time where there would be one sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that was to come. But making sacrifices was a way of acknowledging our sinfulness, our remorse, and then realizing that they are so heinous that blood needs to be shed that a substitute, in this case an animal, could be uh, placed, and so that sacrifice would be given and would die. And Paul is saying, okay, we, we don't do that anymore because the one who's blood was shed has been shed once for all, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. But still, here's what we do. Here's how we live in relation to that. We offer ourselves as sacrifices. But rather than offering ourselves and then dying, we continue to live and breathe and go about our business, but by giving ourselves to God. Now, we do die in a sense because we're called to die to ourselves, die to our own ambitions, die to our own self-glory, and live for others and ultimately to live to the glory of God. And so we are dying to ourselves, but we continue to live and breathe and go about our daily business. And so we are now living sacrifices when we offer ourselves to God fully in every aspect of our being. And I think that part of the reason that Paul deals with this is because there's still something within us, even those of us who, you know, know theologically the sacrificial system is over with, we still have this desire to offer sacrifices. I mean, think about when you really, really wanted something. Or think about when things were not going well for you and the prayer life. For, for many of us, and certainly it's true for me, and I teach how foolish this is, you know, we tend to say, Lord, you know, if you'll take this away or if you'll provide this, I will do or I won't do. We offer, we bargain, which is an, act, an issue of sacrifice. And here Paul is saying, here's the sacrifice. Here's the way that we're to live. Just give yourself every part of your body, the strength that we're told that we're to love God with. 
And, and so that's your hands and your skills and your talents. It is, it, is, it is your brain. It is your heart. It is whatever you do, anything that you engage in, there's nothing you can engage in in this life without some aspect of your body being involved. And God says, give that over to him. And that is like a living sacrifice that is an expression of worship. So how do we do this practically, or how do we experience this? I would say this, for each of us, we need to ask ourselves, what, what are we most hesitant to yield to God in our lives? What areas do we prefer God not touch? that's probably the area we need to begin most, to be able to give over to God. All of it belongs to God. We give ourselves, come fully to him. And God says, that's a living sacrifice, and that is an act of worship to me. That's part of the call to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. But we do that, and we're empowered to do that, as we are reminded of the mercies of God, as we're reminded of what God has done for us in Christ. But Paul goes on. And he says the Christian life, not only does it require that we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, but the Christian life requires a transformation and a renewed mind. We, we see that in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that, uh, as Paul is speaking here of, and giving us his instruction. Now, sometimes this is where it gets confusing. You know, we're not to love the world and we're not to be shaped by the world. And it might be helpful to know that the, the word that's transferred, or trans, uh, translated world here also uh, that could be translated present age. It's what we're not to be conformed to, we're not to be shaped by is the, is the present age. It's a caution against becoming what we would call worldly. Some people, though, will define worldliness as living outside a specific set of rules or of conservative principles and standards. But a better biblical description of worldliness is loving the values and the pursuits of this world or this present age rather than the values and the standards of God. In other words, this world and our present age has sets of values, and those values work together as a system. And some of the values in themselves are not inherently wrong, but as they are used and as they work together as a system, they are set up as a way of life that is an alternative to, which therefore makes it in conflict with the way of life according to God. Among our present age, our present cultural values are power, wealth, beauty. There are certainly others. And there's nothing wrong with power. It's dangerous, but there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with wealth. It can be, uh, have challenges, but there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with beauty, though it is fleeting. But the combination of those, along with others, creates a system which is referred to as world. And we're not to be conformed by that. And the reason that that is so power doesn't mean just don't embrace that, but so often people in the church, those who are claiming the name of Christ, they will reject 
certain external expressions of the world and the systems and the governments and the whatever, and then they bring in the world's values and try to run the church according to those very same things. Paul is saying here, don't be conformed. Don't be shaped by these values. Don't be shaped by the world. Now, what does it mean to conform? The most obvious things that come to mind to me is, you know, something like a jello mold or a cookie cutter. Uh, you know, you, you stamp it down and whatever it is, it, it now takes that shape. A couple of other ways of looking at this, uh, different friends of mine have uh, expressed this. One friend said that it's like becoming acclimated. Imagine that you are going hiking in high mountains, but you don't live there. And so for the first few days, as you're breathing in the much thinner air, you're easily out of breath and you're, you're tired and very easily you're fatigued. But after a couple of days, you, you get acclimated and you fit right in. That's your being conformed. Now, it's not that there's anything wrong with hiking and acclimating in that way. But when we get acclimated to the spirit or the culture or the, 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 the age and the values of that, when we get acclimated and we just kind of breathe it in as if it's normal, well, then we are being conformed to the world. Another friend put it this way. He said that it's kind of like setting cruise control to the flow of the traffic around you. Imagine when you're on the Beltway around D.C. Now, you know, survival requires that you conform to the traffic around you. And so you get up with, you know, going the same speed that everybody else is, and then you set your cruise control, and and you go, and, you know, that's, that's how you go. And again... If you're going to D.C. anytime soon, especially during rush hour, I hope you'll conform to the traffic pattern because I'd like to see you again. But when we look at the world that's around us and we now gauge the way that we are to live based on what everybody else around us is doing, then we are conforming to the patterns of the world rather than being shaped by what God has told us to be and to do. Now, Some assume that the answer to this conforming problem is simply to withdraw. And others just assume it's a matter of just doing the opposite. Whatever the world's doing, I'm going to do the opposite. The opposite thing and the withdrawal thing we see in, uh, through church history, 20th century church history, and in a lot of uh, the practice of, of fundamentalism. There's a lot of really good things and commendable things, but there are a lot of things that were uh, not exactly the way that God has prescribed here. I remember when I was involved in youth ministry and one of the young men we brought to the, to the ministry and it was part of a very, very large church. And one of the things with very, very large churches is you tend to have very, very large facilities and other resources. And so this young man came to our, our youth group. He enjoyed it. After youth group, people had kind of free time run, whether they go in the gym or do something else. And, you know, one of the rooms off the side of, of the gym of, of the church, we had a, a pool table, a ping pong table, other things. And so this guy went out with, you know, some of the other kids that were in the youth group went and went home and told me that his mother said he could never come back to our youth group and church again because he had played pool. And while she didn't ever go to church, she grew up with certain aspects of this fundamentalist attitude, which kind of like, you know, here's what it means to live. Don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls or guys who do. And, you know, as long as you do that, then you're, doing, you're, you're living fine. And she associated the fact that there was a billiard table there and people were playing pool with a pool hall the pool hall obviously means that they were gambling, and not only were they gambling, somebody was probably drinking, and everybody's probably smoking. And look at all the rules. This church is actually inviting kids to drink, gamble, and smoke, I mean, at youth group. And so she, he wasn't allowed to come. 
And so the idea was, whatever the world does, I'm not going to do that. The reality is there's many things that are in the world. The problem is not the practices themselves, but the way that they're engaged. And the other thing that people don't recognize is when you look at the world does and decide, I'm just going to do the opposite, you're still being shaped by the world. You may not be being conformed, but you're being shaped. They're still playing the tune to which you dance to or don't dance to, whatever it is that you... Um, whatever it is that you're supposed to do, because it's still the world that is setting the practice. The answer is not to look at the world, figure out what they're doing, and then don't do that, do something else. The answer, Paul tells us, is found in the renewed mind, the transformation that, that comes from, trans- or transformation that comes from a renewed mind. And Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And the word transformed here is the same root as the word we say is metamorphosis. Perhaps the best and most common illustration of, metaphor, uh, of, of this transformation of metamorphosis is from your high school biology class with caterpillars and butterflies. The idea of metamorphosis is something that maybe something as good as becoming greater and becoming better than it was. And that's certainly what Paul is implying for us, is that we who are created after the image of God, we have become adopted, and we are his children. But as we are transformed, we who are good now become like Christ. That's the the whole point of the transformation process that God has begun in us. But even from your high school biology classes, there are certain things that you need to understand. And they apply to us in our own process of transformation. One is there is no shortcutting the process. Imagine there in the springtime, a caterpillar has gone into his cocoon, and maybe a, a young boy one day sees a cocoon that is beginning to burst open in places, see maybe a leg or a tip of a wing uh, beginning to sprout out and then decides, that looks like that's hard. So why don't I help in this process? Takes his pocket knife out and slits on the cocoon so that the butterfly can emerge. It may be well intended, but those of you who have studied this know that there's a serious problem with this because rather than letting the butterfly escape with less energy, once that is done, what comes out of there, what you will see is going to be undeveloped and misshapen. See, it's part of the process, the, 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 the energy, the, the, the challenge, the trial, the travail is part of the process that shapes and makes the caterpillar complete into the butterfly. It's just, it's just part of the transformation process. And the same is true for you and for me. And that's particularly a word for parents who tend to get in the way by helping and paving the, you know, uh, Uh, the way for all their children, just to make it easy for them. You are crippling them in their development if you pave the way for them. We need struggles, and that's part of what God is part of of the process. But now using the same illustration of the butterfly, look at at it this way. Just imagine there's a kid who probably needs to see a counselor at some point, but decides, you know, I see a caterpillar and I see a butterfly, and I wonder what would happen if I clipped the wings off of the butterfly and I glue them onto the caterpillar. Again, we're not talking psychology. This is an illustration only. And so he does that with great precision, you know, pocket knife, clips off the, the wings, and now he has uh, super glues them onto the caterpillar. And for the untrained eye, 
now what you have walking along the ground looks like a butterfly, except that it'll never fly. And see, this is the power of the gospelist idea when we decide that we're going to live the life of Christians, but it's not by being reminded of the mercies of God when we're not powered by constantly reminding ourselves of the gospel. We are like the caterpillar who's now just put the wings on. It may look like it, but it will never be what it's supposed to be. On the other hand, you could take the butterfly and you could throw it down into the ground and maybe in the dust, and the dust will cover its wings and it'll be, you know, not look. And if you look at it and maybe only see the body, it might look exactly like a caterpillar, but it's not. And at some point it will emerge and it will fly because that's what it's designed to do. And you may feel like you are under it right now and you are in the midst of trial or travail and you may feel like you're being covered up and whatever, frustrated with your own life. But if you are in Christ and if you are reminding yourselves and the gospel is at work within you, it will do what it is designed to do and you will fly because you will be what you are supposed to be. But it is only as we offer our bodies to God and reminding ourselves there's a transformation that takes place. And then how that transformation takes place, Paul tells us right here, it comes by the renewing of your minds. What does that mean? Well, it means that we begin to think God's thoughts rather than our own. God has revealed it, revealed to us things that we are to believe. And I would say, therefore, to know. And then we are to see the world and see ourselves and to see God in light of what God has said. And we are to continually deepen our understanding and knowledge so that we are shaped more and more, that we would see things the way God has seen. We all have this problem, and I have it on a regular basis. I think this, and the Word says this. Now, a lot of times, and ideally, they conform to one another. What God says, and I'm conformed, I already am predisposed to that. But there are many, many times I think this, or I want this, and God says this, and one of us is wrong. And history tells me it's never God. It's often evident to me, sometimes not evident to me, but I am in need of knowing what God says, and then looking at the world, and looking at myself, and looking at you, and looking at every aspect of my life through the lenses of the revelation that God has given us in the Word. And again, there is no shortcut. Nobody can do that for you. Nobody can see for you. We must be in the Word. The Word should shape what we believe. And when we now believe it, then we know how we are to respond and to live. And Paul says, see, here's how transformation takes place. As your mind is renewed and becomes more thinking what God thinks, well, then the transformation is taking place. There is no transformation apart from the Word of God and the Spirit who is at work and empowering and enabling us to be transformed. And the reality is Our churches are full of caterpillars with butterfly wings. And here is a call to saying, you can be so much more. Believe, continue in believing, and then respond to the mercies of God. Finally, and I won't go into this much, but there is another thing that Paul says, because so far Paul is saying, 
in view of the mercies of God, we, we offer our, our bodies as living sacrifices. We renew our minds according to his word. But Paul also says ultimately, or, or, or finally, another aspect of this is the Christian life requires a submissive will. So what Paul says here at the very end of this passage, you know, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. And the, the transformation process is intended to bring us to a place where uh, now our, our bodies are sacrificed to God, our, our minds are renewed by God's word, and that our wills are in subjection and submission to his will. You know, we, we pray, you know, your kingdom come and your will be done, but the reality is often the will is the last holdout in our rebellion against God. We want to be the you know, master of uh, our fate and the, the captains of our own souls. And so we might say, okay, I will give God this, this, and this, but this is uh, God can't have. That's a, an act of our, our will. It's an act of using our will. And yet there's no point in praying your will be done if we don't have any intention of being those through whom his will is done. John Piper touches on the problem that, I was going to say most, but the practice is probably all of us wrestle with. In his book, Desiring God, he makes this observation. The mistake we make is thinking that there is a choice between God being glorified and us being satisfied. The truth is that God in his grace has made it so that when he is most glorified, we are most deeply satisfied. You see, it's in discerning the will of God and then doing the will of God that makes us realize that's what's been missing all along. I know a lot of stuff. And I've done some good things. But the whole idea that I'm going to submit my will to whatever God says that I should do, not just refrain, but do what he calls me to do, body, mind, will, we give ourselves to God wholly with this promise that he is still at work. But we do all of these in being reminded in view of the mercies that he gave to us while we were still his enemies. You and I are on a journey, whether we choose to be or not. And we will be carried along by the currents of our culture, as well as our old habits and our regular routines. Or we can intentionally chart a, a new course which will swim against the currents of the culture toward becoming the people. The deep down we have always wanted to be it's not easy swimming against the culture, but who is it that you want to be? Because we know deep down we are created to be so much more than what we have yet become. Paul lays out for us here's the way foundation of the way we live. It involves all of ourselves. And yet we need to be reminded and remind one another. 
And so as I finish this morning, I, I say to you, Isa, and as I've been saying to myself all week with the apostle, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in light of the mercies of God, to present your bodies, present your lives as living sacrifices, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in conformity with his word. And then you will be able to discern what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect, and live according to the will of God. Father, we pray with thanksgiving for your word. May this strike every one of us here to bring encouragement to some, renewal to others, and maybe even new birth to still others. But we do pray for you to be at work to renew us, that we might experience the joy of the fellowship that is ours in Christ, and that we may live the lives that are becoming of children of the living King. Lord, may we live to your glory and find there is more joy in that than what we would have ever imagined, that we might praise you all the more. I pray in the name of our incomparable King, Christ Jesus. Amen.